We have been talking about masculinity for a few weeks now. Hope you uh, all found my dad to be a nice guy. Uh, he preached last Sunday for Father's Day. Uh, I haven't heard the whole sermon yet. I hope he didn't tell any embarrassing stories about me or anything. Just a couple, I guess. But um, he, uh, he's been so tremendous in my life in showing me, modeling for me what it means to, to be a man particularly what it means to be a man of God, which is what we're really talking about more specifically, what it means to be a man within the kingdom of God, because the truth is that men, especially men who are trying to be faithful, uh, we're getting mixed messages, and, and we're confused, and I don't want this to sound whiny. I'm not, I'm not saying men, you know, have a hard time of it or anything. I'm just saying um, internally, uh, we're struggling to figure out what it means to be and behave like a man in the culture we live in. I told you the story a couple of weeks ago about my friend who went on the two dates with the two different women in the same week. Um, the one, the first woman he went on a date with um, wanted him to treat her as an equal, which for her meant, you know, you don't open doors for me, you don't pay for my dinner. And he did both of those things. He was a perfect gentleman and she never called him back. And then the second date he went on, he learned from the first date and struck out again because the second date he went on wanted him to be a gentleman uh, and he didn't open doors and didn't pay for the the dinner or anything. And so in some ways, women send men mixed messages. Uh, culture sends men mixed messages. And even our own bodies send men mixed messages. You know, we are, we are pre-wired to live in the wild. Like we've got 20,000 years worth of wilderness adrenaline pumping through our veins. You know, we're, we're preconditioned to love the hunt, the chase, the pursuit, uh, to be uh, on, the, on the edge, you know, to, to risk and push the envelope. And yet most of us spend 40 or 50 hours a week in front of some computer screen sitting at some desk making somebody else rich. And it, it, it really, it really uh, in an existential way, troubles men. And that's, I think, where you see men acting out in irresponsible ways is out of that deep-seated feeling of, uh, of frustration, not giving men excuses to behave in bad ways, but I think that's where a lot of it is rooted. The commercial I'm about to show you is a Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercial from a few years ago. It's for Dodge cars, and I think it kind of encapsulates what we're talking about in a, in a humorous way. I will get up and walk the dog at 6.30 a.m. I will eat some fruit as part of my breakfast. I will shave. I will clean the sink after I shave. I will be at work by 8 a.m. I will sit through two-hour meetings. I will say yes when you want me to say yes. I will be quiet when you don't want to hear me say no. I will take your call. I will listen to your opinion of my friends. I will listen to your friends' opinions of my friends. I will be civil to your mother. I will put the seat down. I will separate the recycling. I will carry your lip balm. I will watch your vampire TV shows with you. I will take my socks off before getting into bed. I will put my underwear in the basket. And because I do this, I will drive the car. I want to drive. Charger. Man's last stand. Okay. So you get the idea. The problem comes when the man buys the car and he's still not satisfied. When the man buys the car and he realizes that doesn't fill the hole that he felt in his soul, and then you get yourself into some real trouble. But I think this kind of thing is why things like Fight Club become such cult classics. You remember the movie Fight Club from a few years ago? I mean, it became 
like something of biblical importance to a generation of young men looking for meaning in a world that um, wanted things from them they didn't understand how to give. And things like um, mixed martial arts and the UFC, things like this, in a civilized world, you wouldn't think they would profit, and they just continue to grow in popularity, even the NFL and things like that. I know I'm in Texas now, and I can't say anything about football, but that's, that's, the, that's the reality. Like, we're drawn to these violent outlets, I think, um, for a reason. And what I want us to ask today, men, and I'm talking to men and to people that love them, and so this hopefully will be for everyone in some way. But the question I want to wrestle with is how do we reconcile the way God made us with the way the world wants us? How do we as Christians reconcile the way God made us with the way the world wants us? I, I feel like church hasn't always been helpful in this regard because while Christianity began as a movement born in fire and blood and rebellion it, over the years, has become more of an institution that's about sentiment and feelings and emotions and, uh, and, and you know, a, a kind of, um, I don't know, reminiscence of the past, of a past age. And we have to dig through our feelings if we want to be Christians. And, and so in the past, the beginning of the church... Men gave their lives for the church, for the movement. And now they're hard-pressed to give a Sunday morning for the church. And that's kind of the reality that we find ourselves in now is that church has become just one more passive thing for men to get through. Church has become one more meeting to sit through. It's one more gold star for good behavior, one more way to get out of your girlfriend or your wife's doghouse, one more way to show you're a good little boy. And I'm not sure that's what church was ever meant to be. There was a marketing firm that was paid a lot of money by several different mainline Christian denominations, so like Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, stuff like that. And they paid this marketing firm um, a lot of money to study church messaging, to determine who it is like intentionally or not, who it is that the church is targeting. Like who is the church's average target audience? And so they studied a huge cross-section of congregations and they studied their messaging, their online presence, their bulletins, their newsletters. They studied the sermon topics. They studied programming, buildings, and decor, all of it. And this reputable marketing firm determined that on average, the average target audience of a church's messaging in America these days is a 60-year-old white upper-middle-class Christian woman. And I can't argue with it. Like, nothing against 60-year-old white middle-class Christian woman. You're good if that's you. You're fine here. But I, I, think, I, I think that's not the, the target that I see Jesus aiming at. Right? That's not the target that I see the early church aiming at when it was a movement. Why should we be targeting Christians at all? Right? <laughs> we should be targeting people who aren't Christians yet. And so, um, so one thing that we really set out to do when we started the story was to create a culture that not only would men enjoy, but that men would get excited about and talk about things that men would resonate with and maybe 
take to work with them the next day and tell their friends about. And so that's kind of what we've been doing. And as we get through this last part of this sermon series, men, I want to ask two questions. I want you to think about all the sentimental, sappy, drippy experiences you've had and hated probably in church over the years and ask yourself these two questions. First, what if Christians aren't supposed to be polite? And what if church isn't supposed to be passive? What if Christians aren't supposed to be polite? And what if church isn't supposed to be passive? These are the two questions I want us to wrestle with today. Stanley Harawas, a great preacher, uh, professor, um, uh, Methodist professor, uh, said, uh, said this. He said, sentimentality, not atheism, is the deepest enemy of the Christian faith. Sentimentality, not atheism, is the deepest enemy of the Christian faith. And he defines, actually he doesn't define, Webster defines sentimentality in this way. Sentimentality, according to Webster, is excessive tenderness, sadness, or nostalgia. And Harawas says that this, excessive tenderness and nostalgia, this kind of thing, is the deepest enemy of the Christian faith. It doesn't make sense on the face of it until you start thinking, until you start thinking about that son of yours, that grandson, that husband, that boyfriend, that brother of yours, who is so disinterested in being a part of Christianity now. And you start to make sense of it in your head when you think about how dripping with sentiment so much of Christian worship is today. A lot of it is about what color the banners are in the sanctuary, what kinds of flowers are on the altar, you know, things that aren't really super biblical and things that men definitely don't get too excited about. Um, and so what, what Hauerwas is saying is by, by saying that sentimentality is a problem or a threat to us, he's saying that too many Christians get too worked up and too upset and too emotional about too many of the wrong things. Did any of you see this happening in your Facebook feed this week? <laughs> Christians getting too worked up, too emotional, too reactionary about too many of the wrong things. One of my favorite preachers said something once in a sermon in a pulpit in a prestigious church with stained glass windows, high stuff, you know. He said something I can't even repeat here. I was going to say it until I learned that the children were with us in service today, so I'll go easy on you, parents. But Campolo, an evangelical preacher, stood up and he said, last night while we slept comfortably in our beds, 30,000 children across the world died from hunger-related diseases, and most of us live as though we don't give a blank. And he said, the worst part is, more of you are upset about the fact that I said the S word than you are about the fact that 30,000 children died from hunger-related diseases last night. This, this is sentimentality. This is the threat that threatens the Christian faith, what Hauerwas calls the deepest threat or the deepest uh, enemy. And we've sentimentalized the Christian gospel. We've sentimentalized God. We've made God into this grandfather kind of figure who never judges, who never, you know, we don't even talk about hell anymore because a sentimental God would never send someone to hell. You know, a sentimental God just wants to cuddle. And he'll cuddle you and he'll cuddle me. And he'll cuddle Hitler, and he'll cuddle whoever, you know, because the sentimental guy just wants to cuddle. That's what we've done to God. We sentimentalized all of it. We sentimentalized 
you know, hell, we sentimentalized Satan, like the embodiment of evil. We put red tights on him and gave him a pitchfork, and now he's a cartoon because we've sentimentalized to that extent. We've sentimentalized angels. You realize every time an angel appears in Scripture, what the first thing is he has to say? What's the first thing an angel says every time? Don't be afraid. You think they had to say, don't be afraid? <laughs> Come on. We sentimentalize angels. We make them into chubby, naked babies with wings. We sentimentalize things. We sentimentalize Jesus. You really think about it. We've internalized images like the one on the screen of Jesus nestling up to a sheep. What kind of man hugs a sheep? I love Jesus. I'm not going to hang out with this guy. I'm going to take him out for a beer. I don't want to be seen with this Jesus. I showed this Jesus to my five-year-old son. He was completely unimpressed. I showed this Jesus to my five-year-old son. Jesus holding a velociraptor. <laughs> Suddenly the Messiah was relevant. And somehow I think this image is more accurate. The image of Jesus, you know, subduing, domesticating velociraptors to me makes more sense than cuddling some livestock sheep thing like a pet. It doesn't make sense when we overly, you know, sentimentalize these things. Uh, Jesus, I am convinced, was not the sentimental type. Jesus, I am convinced, was a savage. Jesus was a savage. In the face of demons, he stared demons down. He talked them back. He stared evil down. He savagely protected the vulnerable in his midst. He savagely protected children and women. Jesus was wild. Jesus was muscular. Jesus was visceral, intimidating even. Grown men feared Jesus. So the image of Jesus hugging a lamb or the other softer images of Jesus that we have, if they're not fearsome, they're not, they're not equatable to the gospel, the Jesus we find in Scripture. Mark chapter 11 tells the story. It's the most famous story of Jesus kind of blowing his lid, and we kind of have made this story a caricature as though this story of Jesus turning over tables in the temple is outside of his nature. Have you noticed how we do that? Like this one time Jesus did that, but every other, you know, I, I don't buy it. I think this was right up Jesus' alley, this idea of Jesus storming into a holy place and I love the line, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I love the line where it says Jesus didn't allow people to carry things across the temple. Like, what does that even look like? Did Jesus just like, flip it up like when they're trying to carry books or something? Like, a, you know, I don't understand what it even looks, but, but Jesus disrupted things. And it says in the passage, the scribes and priests feared him. They were afraid of him. That's Mark's uh, story. John's version of that same story is even better because it says Jesus premeditated his, it wasn't like he just impulsively, you know, lost his temper. It says Jesus stood off in the corner and made a whip out of cords. In John chapter 2, made a whip out of cords. And then once the whip was made, he started chasing dudes around church with it and whipping guys, whipping grown men, whipping preachers with a whip that he made. Now, what would y'all do if there was a man sitting back in the corner? like weaving microphone cables together. <laughs> and he came up here and whipped me with it. Like, you'd call the cops, I hope. After you got done laughing, probably you'd call the cops. 
And that's what they did on Jesus. They called the cops. Jesus was that kind of guy. They called the Roman authorities to have him arrested. That was the deal. That was his personality. And I think we, especially we men, need to grasp that that's who Jesus was. This is the kind of guy we would look up to. We would get excited about following as men. Um, that's the nature of, of Jesus. I'm not sure there's anything really sweet or really soft or sentimental about him. I think he was wild and entertaining and intimidating, but we have softened him. My least favorite, most annoying way that Christians soften Jesus is with his most famous sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I think we miss that sermon completely, the aggressive nature, the assertiveness of the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read a passage from it. And um, really, I could do this with the whole sermon. Maybe one day we'll do another series. But this is a little snippet. If you want to open your Bibles, Matthew 5. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, Matthew 5. Uh, or your phone or whatever, screens, that works too. I still want us to get in the habit of bringing our Bibles with us. If you don't have a Bible, you're new today or whatever, grab one at the hospitality station on your way out. We'd be happy to gift that uh, to you. Matthew 5, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Take, uh, give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. Christians hear this, and we hear platitudes. We hear sweetness. We hear submission. Compliance. We hear cowardice, frankly. We hear, take your beating for the sake of peace. And we have internalized a doormat philosophy as Christians, and we've called it Christian behavior, and I, never, I don't think Jesus ever intended it to be understood that way. I think there's something completely different going on with this um, passage. Some of you might have studied this before. It's important, though, that we point um, this out. I think most of us hear Jesus saying, be cowards for the sake of peace. I think most of us picture a pale, skinny Jesus speaking in a soft British accent when he says this. Do not resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. You know, like he's really sweet. That is not the way I picture Jesus uh, saying this. Uh, we've been conditioned, though, to accept that doormat philosophy. And I think we need to uh, reimagine what Jesus is saying when he says these three things. He says, uh, turn the other cheek. He says to give the shirt off your back. And he says to go the extra mile. I want to unpack these three things really fast for us. Um, I know the kids are here. We, everybody gets restless. But uh, I want to talk about these three things. First of all, I think it's important to say who Jesus is talking to. His, his target audience, unlike the target audience of the modern American church, Jesus' target audience was mostly young, mostly poor, and mostly male. So Jesus targeted with most of his messaging that crowd. And so most of the people in his crowd were peasants. They were poor. They were men and women as well, mostly men in his crowd 
that were following him. And so when Jesus says to this crowd of people, when they slap you across the face, these are people who've been slapped around recently. They're the poor people living under the oppression of Roman occupation. The Roman army had invaded Israel, Judea, and, and was occupying their land. The Roman military was not known for its kind benevolence. They were known for enforcing Pax Romana with an iron fist. So these were people that had been slapped around. This is not something esoteric, something you know, theoretical. Jesus says, when they slap you, the next time they slap you. And he says, when they slap you across the right cheek, and this is important because people attacked with the right hand in those days for different reasons. Jewish people attacked with the right hand because the Bible says that's your clean hand, that's your fighting hand. Roman soldiers would have attacked with the right hand because of their gear that they held with the left. And so he says, when they slap you across the right cheek, what that means is they didn't punch you like a man. They backhanded you, if you can imagine being slapped across the right cheek with the right hand, they must have backhanded you. So we don't get to see Jesus' mannerisms, but when he says this, I imagine Jesus says, when they slap you across the right cheek. So a backhand isn't meant to cause damage. It's not meant to, to damage someone. A backhand is meant to demean someone. A backhand doesn't cause harm. A backhand causes humiliation. And so this is a way of putting people back in their place, putting an inferior person back in their inferior place. And so masters did this to slaves. Abusive husbands did this to wives. Some parents did this to children. Romans did this to Jews. To put them in their place. So when Jesus says, stand up and show them your left cheek as well, not saying take your beating and be complicit and compliant. Saying, stand up and say, hit me like a man. Punch me like the human being that I am. Punch me with some respect. Punch me with some dignity. Give me that dignity because I am your equal. It's this bullying of the police that Jesus is encouraging his listeners to do, punch me like I'm a man. So uh, um, that is the, the meaning of turn and give your left cheek as well. Assert you, your humanity, assert your masculinity within a system that would emasculate you is Jesus' message. The second part of this is even better than the first because Jesus inserts some comedy here, I think. And he says uh, this whole, you know, give him the shirt off your back. And that's another thing that we Christians have sentimentalized. Well, good Christians always give the shirt off your back. He'd give the shirt off his back to anybody. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus didn't mean it quite that way. That stuff's nice and good, but Jesus wasn't being nice when he said this. Jesus is talking about what's happening legally with his listeners they were mostly poor, and so it wasn't uncommon for Jesus' listeners to be brought to court because most of them couldn't really get by without going into debt sometimes to feed their families. And the debt system back then wasn't quite the same as it is today. Uh, I guess the system was kind of rigged. It was set up against 
the peasants and the poor. So it was kind of like the whole system was like this uh, title loan place. It was like, you know, it was like, it was that kind of thing where you would go into debt and you could never get out. And then they owned you and they would take you to court and you would, you could potentially lose everything. You could potentially lose the shirt off your back. You could end up in debtor's prison. You could end up as a debt slave if you were in debt. There was no bankruptcy protection for Jesus' followers in those days. And so Jesus says, when you go to court and they sue you for the shirt off your back, he's saying more than just be kind. Jewish peasants wore two garments total. They wore an outer garment that was kind of like a robe. And they wore an inner garment that was kind of like pajamas. Long shirt kind of thing. And so Jesus says, when they sue you for one garment, you give them the other one in the courtroom. What is he suggesting? What do his listeners hear? Let's go streaking. Let's, <laughs> let's streak in the courtroom. Let's just get naked. And it was this, his... his Listeners would have found this hysterical to get naked in the middle of a Roman courtroom to bear themselves and just be the way God made you right there in the middle of the courtroom. But it goes even deeper than that because in the Hebrew Bible, um, nakedness is shameful, but it's not shameful to the one who is naked. It's shameful to the one who sees your nakedness. If you go back and read like the story of Noah, Go back and read some of the rules in Leviticus we're going to study next month. If you look upon the nakedness of someone else, you are ritually, ceremonially unclean. You are unholy. You are ashamed publicly. So Jesus is saying, if they sue you for your shirt, take the other thing off as well and shame those who sought to shame you. It's aggressive. It's assertive. It's a way of bullying the bullies and pushing back uh, against those who dehumanize you. The third one um, that he says is to go the extra mile. Again, we've sentimentalized that. Good Christians go the extra mile. It's one of those things we say. But Jesus isn't being folksy here either. Jesus is referring um, to a real practice that was happening. When he says, when they make you go one mile, he's talking about what Roman soldiers were allowed to do with Hebrew civilians, and this was written in the Roman rules, and it said that Roman soldiers can compel or coerce or force a civilian to carry their supplies for one mile. And the Romans thought they were being merciful, like you, can, you can't force a civilian to carry your stuff for any more than one mile. But it was still a burden, and it was dehumanizing, humiliating to be forced at the drop of a hat to carry something that wasn't yours for a mile. Y'all remember Simon of Serene, the guy that carried Jesus' cross? There was a reason why the soldiers could coerce him to do that. He wasn't voluntary. It was part of the rules. And so you could make them carry your pack for one um, mile. So when Jesus says this, uh, uh, he is referring to that reality. So to force a civilian to carry the pack any further than that one mile would be to break military code which is something that no military man ever wants to do because you could be punished by the centurion. And the soldier would not know what punishment awaited him. The centurion could decide to fine him or to feed him just barley instead of the normal food. For, that was a common um, punishment. He could flog him 
publicly if he got into this kind of uh, trouble. Um, and so the soldier had no way of knowing what the consequences would be if he broke the law. So when Jesus says, when you're done with the mile, go on a second mile, it's another act of subversion. It's fighting back. I want you to picture the scene with me. A soldier has forced a civilian, a Jewish peasant man, to carry his pack for a mile. Soldier's all dressed up in his armor and stuff, in his uniform, and big guy, and this tiny Jewish peasant has carried his stuff for a mile, and the mile is up, and the soldier says, okay, I'll take that from you, and the peasant says, nope, I think I'm good, let's keep going. And it puts the soldier in an awkward position. Like, is he trying to insult my strength? Is he trying to get me in trouble? Is he gonna report me for abuse? You know, the whole power dynamic shifts here. But can you imagine? The scene I picture in my head is like the peasant, like, running from the soldier with his stuff and the soldier chasing him. Come on, man, just give it back. Just give it back, please. I'll take it. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing is the, the picture that Jesus uh, paints here. So, guys, I just wanted to give you a sense of who Jesus really was and Jesus' true character, his true nature. Uh, as evidenced in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he's saying to those who are beaten down, stand up. Assert your humanity. Assert your masculinity in a world that would emasculate you. So uh, <laughs> one time in Kansas City uh, at the church we started there, there was a man who had just joined our church. He was maybe 50-something, uh, just upstanding guy, uh, just awesome. He's a doctor. He was a pediatric psychiatrist at a big children's hospital, and we were just so happy to welcome him to our church. And one day after church, he asked if this group that he was a part of could have their monthly meeting in our church building um, that week because the place where they were was under construction, and, and it was a big group, so they needed a space. And I said, well, I think we could probably work something out. You know, like, what kind of group is it? And he said, well, we're all about fighting child abuse. I said, that's great. We, we love fighting child abuse. Uh, you know, it's a Christian thing to do. And I said, well, is it a Christian group? Because we kind of had a rule about Christian groups using the church. And he said, um, yeah, there's some Christians in the group. And I was like, well, that's not what I asked. And, <laughs> but, you know, he was a new member, and I kind of wanted to impress him and make him welcome, and he was a nice guy. He's a doctor, and I figured he hung out with good people, and so I was like, fine, and so I met him that Wednesday night. I met him in the church parking lot, and he, uh, he drove up, or I should say he rode up uh, on, on a motorcycle, and he was not in church clothes. He was in black leather and denim, and, uh, and before he could, he was riding a Harley Davidson motorcycle, which I thought was pretty cool. And before he could tell me uh, what he wanted to tell me, all of his friends showed up at the same time. And they were all riding motorcycles. And they all wore black leather and, uh, and denim. And uh, they were the meanest looking dudes you've ever seen. They, they were not doctors. They, <laughs> they had long hair. They had tattoos. They were just no teeth. And just, it was just scary. And there I was standing in the church parking lot with pleated khakis and a polo, <laughs> surrounded by the loudest motorcycles you've ever heard in your life. It was like a scene from Sons of Anarchy, and I'm standing in the middle of it. And the guy that joined my church, he, he saw the look in my eye, and he was like, are we still good here? He's like, I can go tell the guys that you changed your mind. I was like, no, 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 don't. 
don't do that. We're good. And, uh, and they ended up uh, having their meeting, and then they ended up staying, and some of them joined the church and things. Um, it turns out it's a, it's a legit nonprofit called uh, Bikers Against Child Abuse. And uh, I learned later that many of these guys were themselves abused as, as kids and had lived hard lives. And um, this organization were the people that the cops called when the cops couldn't handle the situation. So these were the guys that whenever there was a child who was abused and the per perpetrator was still out there somewhere, these were the guys the cops would call to come and form a protective hedge around the house where the child lived so that the child knew that she was safe, even though the bad guy that did that to her was out there, she was safe because these big bad dudes were out there protecting her, and she could play in her own front yard without fear. And sometimes they would join with her, and they would play with her as well. It was this incredible, this incredible ministry. Not all of them were Christians. Some of them had been abused by Christians and had trouble reconciling. That, but man, I can't help but believe that this is the sort of thing Jesus had in mind when he told men to assert their masculinity. When he told men to stand up. To stand up in the face of injustice and fight back. Fight back in nonviolent ways, but to fight back on behalf of those who are oppressed. Sometimes people ask me about my profession. They get curious about what it's like to be a pastor. And I think people assume that I prance through the fields and I'm at one with nature and there's like birds on my arms and things. And I think <laughs> they assume, you know, I go and I visit the nursing homes and I, I comfort the lonely and uh, just do sweet things. And I mix in around a golf once in a while. That's what they assume, right? Like, and, you know, uh, sometimes I just, uh, sometimes I really want to tell them that I wake up every morning ready for battle. I wake up every morning thinking it's, it's, it's time to go to war again. Because I do all those things they think I do. I, I visit people in the nursing homes. I comfort the lonely. I reach out to those who are struggling. But it's not so I can be a nice guy. It's not so I can be sweet. It's that I'm called, we're called to fight the darkness. I am fighting the darkness of loneliness when I sit with someone who doesn't have anyone else. You know, it's, it's more than just sentimentality. It's more than just kindness. It's this battle that we're all called to rise up and fight against. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, stand. Show your left cheek as well. Stand. Give them the second garment after they take the first. Stand. And go the second mile. Guys, what is it going to be? What are the ways in which you are going to assert your humanity in a system that may dehumanize us? What are the ways you're going to assert your masculinity in systems that might seek to emasculate you or force you to live in ways against uh, the way you were created to live? And I'm talking about pushing you, pushing us beyond just grilling steaks on the grill once in a while and playing foot or watching football. 
for the whole season of, you know, fall or whatever. There's more to do than that. I'm talking about standing up against injustice, protecting someone who is vulnerable, shining a light in dark places. Men, we've got work to do. Men, men, let's stand. Let's stand and shine our light, the light of Jesus Christ in the dark places.